What a beautiful expression of God's goodness we saw actually in two different ways, if you noticed. One, music, and two, the curiosity and childlike faith of the kids. Isn't that just enjoyable to watch how much enthusiasm they have to discover? I pray that is indeed the same enthusiasm we have this morning as we approach God's word. Amen. Let's open up to Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 this morning. That's our text. We went over Romans 9 last week. We're going over Romans 10, 10 this week. They go together. So we're reading them together. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. This is the word of the Lord. What we said last week is what we're going to say this week. To declare Jesus is Lord is to live as if Jesus is in charge. It's rather that simple in at least stating it that way. To declare Jesus is Lord is to live as if Jesus is in charge. Just to recap just a couple points that are useful for us from last week as we enter into this week. We talked about the idea of Jesus as Lord. And we said that that is power plus authority. Those two things put together. So Jesus has the power to do what he wants to do. I mean, if God wills it, God's going to do it. That's the long and short of it. But also the authority. He has the right to do it. So he has power plus authority, and being Lord implies ownership. Psalm 24, for instance, tells us the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 50 is one that we reference a lot. The Lord is the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills. And even further down, I, I love how it says, Uh, He says, I already own everything. If I were hungry, I wouldn't ask you for it because I don't need anything. God doesn't need us. God created us and desires to be in relationship with us. But, and we underscored this last week, but didn't stress it last week, the idea of Jesus as Lord also brings with it the idea that Jesus is God in a human body. He's the creator. We discover that in scripture. But he's also the redeemer of creation when it's broken. Then we also said, you know, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The idea of being saved, that salvation, we pointed out four things uh, that that implies or that brings with it. Obviously, the list is longer, but these are four key points that if Jesus is Lord, then we are being made into a new creation through him. Not just old parts put together, but something new from the inside out that our relationship, relationships begin to be restored first this way with God, then with other people who follow Jesus, and then we work on the ones outside from there. That we have renewed purpose. Because under the curse of sin, our purpose is ourselves ultimately. But when it's renewed and we're being made into the new creation, we're put back to what we were designed to be, people who glorify and worship the God of the universe and are in close communion and relationship with him. That's what's happening. We have a new purpose to then bring God's kingdom in with him, to be co-laborers in that task. And finally, there's the physical, the redeemed body, the physical expectation that in the end, that which is broken even physically within us gets put to right in the end through Jesus Christ. You can read 1 Corinthians 15 for a great uh, complicated but useful treatment of that. With your mouth, you profess and are saved. 
That's really what we covered last week, and that covers the second part of verse 10 as well, that with your mouth you profess and are saved. This week we're talking about belief, though. So with your heart that you believe and are justified, that's where we're going this week. And so I want to talk about the heart and the justified, and then we'll spend a lot of time on belief, but let's just set up belief right now. Uh, We could use belief, faith, and conviction all as interchangeable words. They simply mean reliance or trust. That's all they mean. We can have reliance or trust on a thing. If you're in a small group, even think now of what things you rely on and trust. That's where the first question starts this week in the small group questions. But already today, you've shown reliance and trust on a whole bunch of things. You are currently relying on your seat to hold you, right? You walked through the door this morning relying on the fact that it would open and would not collapse on you. You drove here this morning trusting that the stoplights would change and do so appropriately. And my suspicion is maybe we have one or two people in this place who are connected with First Covenant who know the people that set up the timing of the stoplights, but most of us don't. We trust that they're going to work even without knowing them. That goes to the children's sermon. We never met them, but we trust that. Belief is fairly straightforward, in my opinion, unless you're too smart for your own good. And then it gets real complicated. We, we exhibit it all the time, but when we try and overthink it and try and take it on our own, that sometimes we, we get into trouble. It's not rocket science, I think, when you get down to it. In the previous church I served in Colorado Springs, if I said it's not rocket science, we actually had rocket scientists, so they're at least like, well, I'm glad I'm not bringing work into this place, but it's not rocket science. But it does take some thinking, I think. So let's talk about the words heart, justified, and work our way to belief. And then we're going to sit on that belief for a little while. But heart, let's, let's take a moment. So with your heart that you believe in are justified, Paul tells us, as he gives us this explanation of what happens in that proclamation, that creedal confession that Jesus is Lord. The heart in the ancient world, and we see this in the Bible specifically, had a number of different sort of nuances to how they understood it. We're going to cover a few of those and just point out that a lot of them intertwine, so we need to understand that. In the ancient world and in the Bible, we see that the heart being the emotional center, and we get that one probably the most pronounced in our culture as well. You know, people say, follow your heart, which is really 90% of the time bad advice, but we hear it a lot, right? Just follow your heart, chase your dreams, that kind of thing. And we know we can feel it in my chest. We can feel certain things. So we understand that. That's, it's, there's something emotional, and we can feel emotions. Okay, we get that idea about heart. That definitely is a biblical usage of heart. But also, in the ancient world, and the Bible it would bring this in as well, uh, they understood the heart much more like we think of the brain, um, and the brain a little bit more like we think of the heart. So the, the function of this is this is also a thinking area, if you will. They can feel it, so they kind of tied that to thinking Two, and those two things go together. You're making decisions here in your chest, but it's a little deeper than just following your emotions. They thought it was actually that decision-making function, rational area. They definitely understood that there's a physical component to your heart, physical vitality to your heart. I mean, the ancient world, they weren't dumber than we were. Sometimes people think that, but they weren't. They could figure things out. If you got stabbed in your heart, you die. Your heart is pretty important, right? We understand that now. We have a ton of of interventions to help when your heart starts to fail or things don't work right. We know that that's catastrophic. They understood that back then. They just didn't have all the other interventions we do. But it goes a little deeper if you connect it to that emotional piece and the thinking piece as they understood it. 
there's a physical and emotional and thinking connection all together. Those all go together. Um, so Jesus, Luke 21, 34, when he's talking about the last things, the day of the Lord, the judgment, he says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. So obviously there's something a little deeper here in, in his use of heart and simply emotional. There's a physical component too. It goes together. What you feel in here and think in here is going to have a physical effect in how you operate in the world. Romans 121, where Paul's talking about the foolish and the wicked, uh, he gets to a common biblical idea of the heart. He says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all else. Same thing going on here. And as, as we, uh, our, our hearts are darkened by decisions like this that have physical effect too, our hearts don't get lighter as we make those. They get darker as we make those decisions. Our choices have a physical effect. Those can build up and weigh on us. And we can understand how physical and, uh, you know, inside your heart and how you feel and all those things kind of go together, right? We might eat emotionally and that's going to have an effect on your heart. We might be like Popeye and eat spinach and that's going to make you feel strong inside and out, right? You might cheat on the exam and your heart's going to feel darkened. You're not going to feel good. We understand these things are actually really interconnected. Our choices have a physical effect and they can weigh us down as much as an emotional effect and otherwise. And I think it's impor really important to understand that because I actually think they get that in the biblical world sometimes a little more than we give credit in our world. We've gone through this sort of, if you look at the last 300 years of philosophy, I won't spend long on it, but just to say we've gone through modernism where everything had to have a rational basis and don't bring emotion into it whatsoever. And then we went through postmodernism where we're like, what is truth? Is, are the words I'm even using true? Blah, blah, blah. And now we're trying to redefine truth. We're in that phase. But in that, we've kind of never given up on this idea of trying to separate out your emotional life and your spiritual life and your physical life, right, and your mental life. We try and tease all these things out as if they're not connected, but we know they are, right? You don't have to look much beyond, let's say, the effects of the sexual revolution, for instance, to recognize that what you do physically has more than just a physical effect, it continues, people continue to try that, that certain things are just physical, but they're not. We know that these things are connected, and I think they get that. Paul is getting at that here. One other thing that we want to add to this picture of this interconnectedness, like the heart is really yourself in so many ways. You make decisions that affects everything about you. But an interesting point to bring up, it's the seed of the will in ancient understanding. Your willpower is here to do or not do something, to see it through, even when it takes great resolve. Acts 11.23, Barnabas is talking to a group, and it says, when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. He was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Your whole self, put your willpower into it and stay in it. And while it doesn't get biblical usage, one area of heart that I think is included in the, the will, it's not overtly there, in the ancient world, the courage was included in the understanding of the heart. And I definitely think that's in the, the willpower component of the heart. So you can see that, 
that the way that the heart is referenced, and I think Paul's getting at a, a composite picture of this and saying the heart, it's your whole self with your willpower. It's going to affect everything about you, inside and out. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, it's got to be all of you that believes that, not just some component of you. You'll be justified if you confess that, if you believe. It's with your heart that you believe and are justified. The call of Scripture from Old to New Testament, one of the most important components that gets uh, brought up in Leviticus and then pretty much all of 1 Peter is about it, is be holy because I am holy, God says. Which, of course, is an impossible task because we're not God. Be holy because I am holy, it says. The idea of being justified, in this case, righteous is the alternate word that could be used there, it's like when you walk through your house, if a picture is tilted a little bit, and you go up to that picture and put it back to right, that's to justify it. You're putting it back to right. You're not doing that to everything else. You're not uh, taking all the pictures that might be a different size and making them all the same level or whatever. That'd be fairness. This is justifying. It's wrong. I put it right. That's what God is doing with us. And when it comes to holiness in us, a biblical picture of this in the, the Gospels is Zacchaeus. When he comes to the Lord and he says, I've been cheating people, stealing their money. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to give back what I've taken. That's justice to justify. Now he goes further and says, some cases I'm going to give back twice as much. That goes beyond the idea of justice. Perfectly fine, but that's not the definition of justice. It's to put it right. What it was supposed to be, it is again. We're supposed to be holy because God is holy. We can't do that without Jesus. The confession that Jesus is Lord is what begins that process to put us right with God. So what we must do to be godly when we make that confession is being done in us by the power of God. We can't do it ourselves. That's salvation, to be put right with God. And that puts us to the point of belief. And here... I'm going to give us three different sort of senses or levels of belief, and uh, they're kind of stair steps. One builds off the other, and I'm not going to claim credit for, for coming up with the words here and the, the development of this. It's, you know, pretty much through Christian history, this is how we've understood it. But uh, the late pastor, covenant pastor Donald Frisk, in his marvelous book on covenant beliefs, if you're interested in good theology, I hope you are, um, and if you're interested in a book on it, his book from 40 years ago is just brilliant, simple. Uh, and, and if you want to get connected with it later, talk to me. I'll, I'll point you in the right direction. But the best part of this book is when he talks about belief, trust in God or belief. And he talks about there are sort of three levels, and we need to stair-step up these. And I think you find this in Scripture. You find people living this through Christian history. The first level is what you'd call assent to doctrine. Agreement is what that means. Agreement with uh, kind of stating, I agree with this thing. To declare Jesus as Lord is a creed. It's a belief statement. We're saying, I believe with all that goes with that. That's assent to doctrine. And to declare Jesus as Lord is actually to make a declaration that we have a particular world view. You know, we believe the world was created by God. Uh, we believe that the world is broken by the power of sin. We believe that God has redeemed the world and believe that that redemption is offered to anybody who will receive it. That's a particular worldview, and we understand then how the world functions through that worldview. That's opposed to other 
worldviews that are out there. So assent to doctrine, we're, we're saying I agree with that. And when we do that, the, the great thing about that is we're actually agreeing with, of course, Scripture. We're agreeing with maybe the creeds, Nicene Apostles' Creed, those kinds of things that are, are scriptural and early church ways of trying to have a shortened version, condensed version of the faith that we can all say together. We are affirming that we're a part of something that started before us, that's part of the church throughout history, both those people that came and those people that will come. And we're part of that story. Assent to doctrine is to join in with that story. And it makes, when we say that at this level of faith, we're trying to understand what it is that we believe. We may not get it fully, but we're trying to understand what we believe. The downside of this, of staying at this stair step of assent to doctrine, is that we can easily believe in the doctrine, but not be committed to the giver of the doctrine. Not actually be committed to the God of the universe and Jesus Christ himself. And so the way you actually see that lived out is you'll often see that people can be committed to the fixtures of the faith over the Savior. Now, I used to see this when uh, I was a hospital chaplain in the western suburbs of Chicago years ago. Um, it was an 80% Roman Catholic uh, hospital. And this is not a commentary on Roman Catholicism, but I would see this in individual cases where uh, I, as a young evangelical Protestant, would go into a room and be working with a family, and I'd pray with the family. But then for some of these families, that was very nice and lovely, but for some of these families, uh, there wasn't enough ritual involved in that. And when the guy with the collar came in, God arrived, is how it felt. And, and the faith was actually, in some of those cases, in the collar. Anybody could have been wearing it. In the fixture, not what it pointed to. You can see that in uh, liturgy. I'm a fan of liturgy, but you can see particularly, I see this in sort of what I call the most progressive and hyper-progressive ends of the church, where there's kind of a diminishment of Jesus, but there's still a real focus on the ritual and the liturgy, and you can kind of fill it with anything. The faith is in the ritual and the liturgy that's there. Right? We kind of have an ascent to doctrine in a sense, but it it's, it's sort of gets hollowed out over time. When we're connected with those we can see it um, in sometimes in renovations in churches and this is not related to anything we're doing here but i've seen it in the past where uh, uh, people are attached to the stuff and get lost in that attachment to the stuff that's there or we can see it even in the workplace where we use faith as an excuse to not do things that's against my religion when we use it inappropriately sometimes that happens or we can see assent to doctrine when we have a private faith, which is not what Christianity is. I actually don't know of any faith that's truly private. That's not how they work. But we don't have a private faith. We have a personal faith in Jesus Christ. If we believe it, it's going to be public. It's going to be demonstrated in our action and our belief. But sometimes we can have a private faith, especially at work. Don't rock anything, that kind of thing. Um, and so that's assent to doctrine where it goes wrong where we just live at that stair step and that's it. And it, we kind of can descend in the wrong direction at that point. The next level, and this is probably where a whole bunch of us live, is belief as trust in God. And we should be there, right? We need to be at ascent to doctrine, agreement. We need to be at belief as trust in God. We believe and we trust what God is up to. Um, to quote Donald Frisk, he says, to have faith 
is to let God be our God with acceptance of all the consequences which follow. I'll read that again. To have faith is to let God be our God with acceptance of all the consequences which follow. And so we can, at that level, we can believe that God is at work and trust that God is at work making us a new creation, redeeming our relationships through and through, that his resurrection power is at work in my relationship with you and yours with me, especially when things go wrong, that the, that, um, that the new purpose that we have as builders of God's kingdom is being worked out in us, and we are taking that seriously when we trust God. And if, if we have this trust in God, then within our lives, this is why it's not a private faith, it's a public faith that we live, our lives are going to reflect the character of our God, that holiness is going to start to come through. What it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom is going to be demonstrated within us. And that's a good thing. So what, what that means in our actual everyday actions is that when we're tempted to actually kind of live the sinful life again, to uh, badmouth someone or have a bad attitude towards someone, or when you have the phone call and it's really a frustrating phone call and you hang up the phone, what happens next, Right. Is it going to be sanctified words that come out of your mouth or something else? When we're tempted in those situations, when we're driving, whatever it might be, we're reminded of the fact that I'm redeemed. I don't live under the old self anymore. I'm a new creation. I'm being made into a new creation. I know when, when I have moments when my attitude's going to go down about something or I'm going to get cynical, Colossians 3 comes to mind. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at God's right hand. We need to be elevated that way to the holiness of God, not living in the sinful life anymore. That's trust in God, and belief is trust in God, that God's working in us to redeem us, even in those difficult moments when we, we want to give into the sinful nature. The downside of this, and this affects me, going to guess it affects you as well, the downside of this is that we can think it's, still think it's our effort that accomplishes the new creation work. We can easily put so much of our effort into it and kind of un, unintentionally kind of keep edging God out of making us a new creation while we're being made a new creation, as if we're taking credit for God's work in us. We need to work our faith out with fear and trembling, absolutely. But sometimes we're less faithful in that to God than we are to ourselves in accomplishing that task. And so we end up being doers. We want to get a tasks accomplished because we can check those off on our list. But we're not very prayerful about it. We're not very reliant on the Spirit. That's the difficulty if we just live at this level. And we can kind of start to diminish the power and work of God in us. We need to continue to ascend then, different kind of ascend, in faith, level up to belief as gift of God, to be reminded of this at regular intervals. Paul actually, just before our passage here, is quoting from Deuteronomy 30, and I want to read just a couple of verses from actual Deuteronomy 30. He quotes it uh, in little bits there before. But this comes from, uh, it's the second telling of the law, the people are going to enter the promised land. They're told you're going to have the blessings and the curses come down from Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim over you when you enter the land so you can remember how you're supposed to live and what happens if you don't live uh, in, in holiness by the law. And, and Moses says this. He says, now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. 
It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it, nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea and get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you may obey it. And you can also add to that then the new covenant through Jesus Jeremiah 31 tells us the law is going to be written in your heart, so we're not going to have a question about it if the new life is being made new in us, if we're being a new creation, the law is being written in here. We're going to be functioning more like the redeemed because of that. And I think it's just amazing to consider. We talk about assent to doctrine, just confessing you believe something. That we believe, we trust God. We have belief that God can and will make us a new creation. But to recognize this all as a gift of God, and we are dependent on God for any of this to occur, for all of this to be there in the first place, for the mechanics of it, for the fact that it's there, any of that, it's amazing that God generously gives all you and I need to make us right and live joyfully. Isn't that amazing? God is the giver of those things. It's not by our effort that we get those. And it's easy to forget that level of belief in the process of working out our faith. It's by grace you've been saved. It's not of your own works. As I considered this, the the example I thought of was, you know, I mean, COVID messed up bulletins, church bulletins, and so we're not entirely sure what's happening there. But, um, but, uh, you know, when we did connection cards, um, you know, I've been doing connection cards one way or another now for as a pastor for 15 years in church life, the things that you fill out, and they've been done all kinds of different ways. We've done them longer, right? We used to pass the pads down the pews, and everybody would pass it, and then you could look and see who was here and see who didn't fill it out. Those are marginally effective as time went on. And so what, what was found over the last 15, 20 years is what's the most effective if you want people to, to collect information from people is you have to get it in somebody's hand. So whether it's in the seat that they're going to sit in before they get there or they walk in and you put it in their hand, they have to have a pen or a pencil in the pew. They won't take the extra effort often to get it out of their purse. You'll lose people or their pocket because they don't have it in their pocket. You'll lose people if you have to do one extra step along the way that requires. And what, what was the most fascinating thing to me in the research on this is what tripped up men for all these years from filling out a connection card when they had to write the date on the card. What's wrong with us? That's the thing that stopped them in their tracks when men had to think, what's the date? I'm done with this, right? (laughs) That was all it took. And what I've discovered as a pastor is that if you want people to get involved, it's really helpful to meet people 95% of the way, so all they have to do is write their name on the the line or check the box. And that's really, that's the golden standard. You want to get to that point, and people will get much more involved much more easily because they didn't have to think about all those extra, extra details. That's good. That's great. Then we can put our effort into the work. God, through Jesus Christ, has written the date on the card for us. God, through Jesus Christ, has done everything, so we just need to make the confession, and then live in response to that. That's living by the grace of God, belief that God has given us uh, his faith, this faith as a gift, and we're justified in that belief. It's with your mouth that you profess and are saved. We can't save ourselves. That's the whole point of the confession. We're confessing that we can't save ourselves. It's with your heart that you believe and are justified. And if just your mouth speaks it, you don't believe it. Again, going back to this idea that we tease out in our culture still, 
the heart, you know, and the, the mind and the body and the emotions as if they're separate things. We do the same thing with belief quite often. We'll say, I believe it, but we don't act that way. Then you don't believe it, right? Your belief is proven by your action. Your mouth can't simply say it. Your whole heart, your whole body has to confess. Your mouth acknowledges what God is already doing in the world when we say Jesus is Lord. We're just accepting the invitation to that life. Today's a great day to think about your belief and where you stand. For some of us, we've never prayed the prayer or even confessed Jesus is Lord. Today's a great day. We'll do that in the prayer. Some of us have prayed the prayer, but it's been a long time. We prayed, uh, you know, uh, for, to come to life in Jesus Christ. But we haven't done much since then. And if that's your category, then today's a great day to level up and ask the Holy Spirit, what needs to happen now? Where do I need to be challenged? For some of us, we're living a faith where we're trying to do the effort that's really God's work to do in us. That doesn't mean there's not human agency and action that we need to be involved in. Sanctification is a team process, but we need to rely on the Spirit to clean house. And we need to ask regularly what needs to be cleaned in here and god come in and do it so let's go to prayer and let's let's put those things before the lord right now lord for those who have never made that confession that jesus is lord put it on our lips right now if you've never made that confession confession speak jesus is lord say yes to new life in him lord there are many of us who need to renew that call in us we prayed the prayer, whether it's at camp or we prayed it many years ago, but not a lot has happened in our lives. We've been trying to do it ourselves, and that's a fool's errand, Lord. We're never going to get there. We pray again, Jesus is Lord, for those of us who need that renewal from the inside out. Jesus, you are Lord. And Lord, there are many of us in the room, myself included, who try to put more effort in than we allow your spirit to work. We need to make room for your spirit to renovate and clean house. We need to make room for your spirit to do things unexpected like you did in Egypt with the Exodus. You acted in ways that were completely beyond expectations for remarkable rescue. Lord, rescue us in remarkable ways from the power of sin, death, and the devil. We confess this morning that Jesus is Lord. Pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, who is our Lord. Amen.